0: This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod.
1: From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. I'm excited about this special episode. It's our first live recorded public session. This conversation took place on June 18 and 19 at the Asia Policy Assembly. The Asia Policy Assembly, or the APA as we call it, is a major conference co-led by NBR and the National Defense University. The APA convened members of Congress, current and former U.S. government officials, the National Asia Research Program Fellows, and senior scholars for a discussion of the most pressing issues facing U.S. policy in Asia today. The APA is part of the National Asia Research Program, a project to train the next generation of scholar practitioners on Asia policy. This episode features one of those plenary sessions. Abe Denmark moderates this session with Dr. Phil Saunders and Dr. Tom Mankin on the topic of China's response to a changing security environment. Let me introduce these participants. Abe Denmark is Director of the Asia Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and Senior Fellow at the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia in the Defense Department. He also worked as Senior Vice President for Political and Security Affairs at NBR. Dr. Phil Saunders is the Director of the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs and a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. He has served as Director of Studies for the Center for Strategic Research and Director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at Monterey Institute of International Studies. He previously worked on Asia policy issues as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. Dr. Tom Makin is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He is a Senior Research Professor at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Macon also serves as a member of the National Defense Strategy Commission. He served at the Department of Defense, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy Planning and in the Office of Net Assessment. He served for 24 years as an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve, including tours in Iraq and Kosovo. So as you see, we have a terrific panel of experts with experience in forming, shaping and implementing U.S. foreign policy. In this discussion, Phil and Tom will share their thoughts on China's objectives, assess how China is responding to a changing security environment, and explore how those changes affect the interests of the United States. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight.
0: China's response to a changing security environment Uh, Thank you all for for, uh, being here. My name is Abe Denmark. I run the Asia program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, but I previously worked at NBR as a a Senior Vice President for Political and Security Affairs. So for me, this is sort of like going back to my old high school. Uh, (laughs) It's great to see a lot of old friends and old colleagues. And, of course, any invitation they ask me to come and do something, I, I have an automatic yes for NBR. And I'm joined today by two tremendous scholars in the field, Um, really people who need no introduction, so I'll keep my introductions with them brief. First is Dr. Phil Saunders, who's Director of the Study of Chinese Military Affairs at NDU, their Institute for National Strategic Studies, and uh, Tom Menken, who's President and CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, also serving at uh, SAIS as a Senior Research uh, Professor. He and I actually worked together in the Office of the Secretary of Defense during the Bush administration, and uh, the three of us actually are gonna be testifying before the uh, US-China Security and Economic Review Commission tomorrow. So uh, uh, Roy over there, we're gonna be testifying before him. Uh, Should be a fun day tomorrow, Uh, but we got a great group here, and we'll start with Phil, then move on to Tom, and then take some uh, Q&A.
2: Sure. Well, my tasking is to talk about China's responses to a changing security environment. I have to start by saying these are my personal views, not those of NDU, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government, even though they ought to listen to what I say. And I'm going to do the classic Washington thing of sort of turning the task around. It, It is true that China likes to portray its policies as responses to a changing security environment or bad things that are other countries' are doing that force them to respond. But I really think it's better to think of China as following an adaptive strategy, and that's the approach I'm going to try to take to tell you what I think that strategy is, how it is adapting, and where it has led China today. So a starting point is to think about China as having a range of objectives, both positive and negative. And the negative ones we can think of as status quo objective. It's things that they want to maintain or sustain or prevent from happening. And that includes uh, maintaining CCP rule, maintaining territorial integrity, preventing Taiwan independence, preventing loss of claimed PRC territory, maintaining cooperation with neighboring countries, especially on counter-terrorism, counter-separatism, counter-extremism, preventing the emergence of a hostile US-led coalition, maintaining economic development, preventing Japan, South Korea, or Taiwan from going nuclear, and maintaining a stable regional environment that supports economic growth. And that's a big list. And these are things that take a lot of work and a lot of Chinese activity just to keep these things from happening or to hold on to what they have. So that's a starting point. Then I think they also have positive objectives, things they want to get done, which we can think of as revisionist objectives. And that includes things like raising the living standards of the population, becoming a first rank military power by 2049, international respect for the accomplishments of China's system, regional acceptance of China's maritime claims, resolving its land border disputes, especially with India on favorable terms, unification with Taiwan, securing China's regional security position. And then you go on to things that are maybe stretch goals or, or even longer term goals, uh, reshaping the international order to be more compatible with China. I, I think of China as a moderate revisionist that wants to change things on the margin, partly because it doesn't want the responsibility of, uh, of running an international order. A couple things that I don't think are goals, I don't see China as territorial expansionist in terms of territories that it doesn't currently claim. Its claims date back to 1949 to the Republic of China, and they haven't really expanded since then, nor irredentist in terms of claiming territories with ethnic Chinese populations on them. So if you think about it as these two sets of goals, status quo goals and revisionist goals, that's helpful in getting a sense of the dynamics of Chinese strategy and policy. So the status quo goals require a degree of cooperation with regional states, even as China's trying to push this revisionist agenda that often works against the interests of these other countries. And if you push too hard, that threatens your status quo goals. And so for China, there's a need for balance or to put it in Marxist terms to manage the contradictions in its policy. And part of what you get with that dynamic is a period, periods of assertiveness when they're pushing forward and periods of restraint when they're pulling back to defuse opposition. And another way of thinking about it is you want to make incremental progress on this revisionist agenda, but you can't lose on the status quo goals. So that's, there's the relative priority there. And from this perspective, the peacetime competition for China is a matter of incrementally improving its position where they can rather than fully reaching a desired end state. And I think that's the big question, is for some of these things like Taiwan unification or maritime territorial goals, can they get where they want to go ultimately without using force? Let me talk a little bit about the tool set. We, at National Defense University, sometimes talk about this as DIME, Diplomatic Information, Military, and Economic. And of those tools, I would say economic and diplomatic are the ones that have been most important for China. Its economic inducements in terms of market access, aid, foreign direct investment, tourism have been a key part of expanding uh, China's influence. But we've also seen the other side, that those are turning into tools that it will use coercively to punish countries uh, when they disappoint China or don't go along with what it wants. I think a big improvement is Chinese diplomacy. They used to only want to operate bilaterally, to be afraid of multilateral institutions. They've learned how to play that game effectively over the last 15 years, and even created new alternative institutions that it can dominate, like Shanghai Cooperation Organization, AIIB, ASEAN plus three, and increasingly see regional and global institutions as a battleground for competition in international politics. In terms of information, a big part of this is China's narrative, that it's uniquely peaceful, and it's the US that is a source of instability and trouble. And that's not an accurate narrative, but it's one they push with great energy. And then finally, in terms of military, they have an increasingly capable military and paramilitary forces, Coast Guard and maritime militia. But on the whole, I would argue they have exercised a degree of restraint in their use. They've tried to stay below the threshold of lethal force and control the risk of escalation. So that's part of the strategy as well. I think we've seen an increasing willingness since about 2010. Isaac Cardin's in the audience, and he worked on some of this research at NDU, to show off its military capabilities, to try to intimidate neighbors, and to try to shape the Asia-Pacific region. So I've described this set of status quo goals uh, and revisionist goals. I've talked about the tension between them. How does China manage that tension? And I think there's a variety of tactics they use. They try to split the US from its allies and partners increasingly using economic inducements and punishments, trying to divide the opposition both within ASEAN and Asia, and usually by singling out only one target at a time. So they focus on on, on one thing at once, using incremental salami tactics to expand their effective control without triggering a military confrontation, emphasizing paramilitary forces like the Coast Guard rather than military forces like the Navy, trying to deter challenges by rival claimants, and again, exercising restraint in, youth, in lethal force. So, we talk about China as an aggressive country, and it is aggressive in some ways, but it's doing it in particular ways with particular tactics. Employing united front and political warfare tactics to weaken adversary will and an alliance cohesion, uh, negotiating crisis management mechanisms to reduce the escalation risk. It's a good thing generally to have those, but it lets them push harder because they're less afraid of the consequences. And I think this alternating pattern of aggression and then restraint that I've described has made it really hard for the United States to mobilize a coalition to respond to China, because whenever they push too far, they have pulled back. Now, a big piece of this strategy is managing the United States. The US is the country that's best positioned to either help China get what it wants or stand in its way. So China's sought to avoid a major confrontation, even as it's building military capabilities aimed at the US and trying to erode the US regional position. I think Chinese leaders are deeply suspicious of US intentions. They see us as pursuing subversion, containment, and regime change. But they don't want to either have a confrontation or a war with the US or produce a US-led alliance against China. So they've used limited cooperation and economic interdependence to try to manage this relationship. They've exploited difference between the US and its allies to weaken the US regional position. They're exploiting the fact that Asian countries want to avoid picking sides between China and the U.S., which makes it difficult to mobilize regional support. I think in some ways, we talked about the BRI a lot yesterday, the Belt and Road Initiative. That's an effort to avoid confronting the U.S., to focus China's energy and attention in Eurasia and not in East Asia and Southeast Asia, where the U.S. is more active. And we start to see that they've begun to pressure U.S. allies and partners to limit their security cooperation with the United States. And the net result of all of this is China's been able to improve its relative military capabilities and posture without directly confronting the U.S. And I think that's weakened our strategic position in Asia. And you can think about China as having a repertoire of tactics that they use, that they dip into when they face a challenge. So this has been a very effective strategy, but I would argue it's gone wrong over the last couple years. And so what's gone wrong, and where does it leave China today? I think they overestimated U.S. relative decline after the financial crisis, and they pushed too hard. And that's important to note, as, as Aaron Friedberg said yesterday, this predates Xi Jinping, but Xi Jinping has reinforced this trend. I think there's been overconfidence that economic interdependence and the business community would mitigate U.S. and European and Asian responses to Chinese assertive reactions. A dismissal of the rebalance in U.S. efforts to strengthen its regional position. I think they underestimated the extent to which this was happening. Their efforts to promote national champions through industrial policies and illegal tech transfer uh, have eroded support of the U.S., European, and foreign business community. They've been less restraint in their use of economic punishments and military intimidation. So instead of picking one country at a time, they've challenged multiple countries. And a Chinese academic told me a couple years ago, China's now using economic sanctions against Mongolia, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, and others, and we're not getting much out of that. I think there's a mistaken belief that other countries would eventually give up their territorial and sovereignty claims in the face of superior Chinese power and overconfidence that the US needed China to manage North Korea, and that would prevent a shift in US policy. And then finally, I think there's a misjudgment of President Trump. They saw him as a businessman. They saw him as a dealmaker and they thought he would be satisfied with relatively modest traditional economic concessions from the Chinese playbook. You buy more U.S. soybeans, you do other things to rectify the trade balance, but you don't change your underlying policies. So where does that leave China today? Uh, This is an argument that they've made some misjudgments and missteps. Where I think they are now is trying to stabilize relations with the United States and prevent a shift to a hostile relationship and not knowing quite how to get there. Can they make a trade deal that satisfies President Trump while minimizing changes to Chinese economic policies and strategies that they see as necessary for continued growth? And I think there's a range of views within the cabinet on what a good deal looks like. That's something the president is gonna decide for himself, and the Chinese aren't clear how to read that. What would that decision look like? Can they play on the reluctance of others to see a US-China confrontation and an economic decoupling that hurts their economic interests And can they rely on others to try to limit US pressure? Uh, And conversely, part of that is, can they use economic inducements to either win support from other countries or keep them on the sidelines in US-China competition. And as part of that, I would argue over the last two years, we've seen a reduction of of Chinese pressure in the South China Sea. We've seen efforts to improve relations with ASEAN in terms of negotiating a code of conduct, improving ties with countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. They backed off their pressure against Japan and South Korea. And to me, this seems like a tactical return to that earlier period of restraint because they know they've pushed too far. I think they know it's not possible to get back to the status quo. At this point, the goal is to limit the damage with the United States and discourage other countries from following the US lead and participating in anti-China coalition. So where I think that leaves us today is an increasing U.S.-China competition for influence in East Asia, South Asia, and throughout the Asia-Pacific. That's going to play a big role. That's the battleground. That's the political, military, economic battleground for U.S. competition. And how we do in that battle is going to have a lot to say about how U.S.-China competition turns out.
0: Thank you very much, Tom, oh. Great. Thanks.
3: Thanks, Abe, and it's a it's a real pleasure pleasure to be here. And I think hopefully my uh, uh, my remarks will complement Phil's. I think Phil did a good job of talking about Chinese leadership's perspective, Chinese objectives. I'd like to flip it around a little bit to uh, to the U.S. side. And I think by and large, uh, in policy discussions we've in in recent years we we've, we've seen a much more sophisticated, much more reasonable, open discussion of the fact of a competition between the United States and and China. Although I think we're we're teetering on the on the verge, at least within the, the Defense Department and the Defense Community, of using the, uh, the the term great power competition as just kind of another another buzzword without really going beneath the surface and, and exploring what we're really what we're really talking about. Um, so that's that's really where I'd like to take the conversation in the, in the short time uh, that I have this morning, which is to address a question that I think needs to be addressed as, as we move forward, which is what specifically is it about China's rise? What is it specifically about the Chinese Communist Party's objectives that concerns us? I think, I th- again, Phil has done a good job of laying out China's objectives, well, what is it about that that really, that really concerns us? Uh, it seems to me that's a, that's a fundamental conversation to have as we formulate our strategy going forward, as we, as we uh, evaluate the, uh, the possibility of a, of a deal between uh, Trump and Xi, whether we even think about some sort of a, a modus vivendi. We really need to get to the heart of it, which is what is it about China and China's rise that really concerns us? And I, I, think, I think it really does come down to four things. And for each of these, I'd, I'd like us to to visualize um, a dial or a, or a rheostat. Or a maybe the dial goes to eleven. Maybe it only goes to ten. But but uh, the first the first dial represents the attention of the CCP leadership and. 1 or 0 is uh, internal, and 10 is, is external. And, and realizing that, that any government is uh, more internally focused than, than externally, ours, theirs, others, I think one of the things that concerns us is that, that growing external focus on the part of the Chinese government manifested in, 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 uh, in all the ways that, that, that Phil talked about. The Chinese leadership is increasingly looking to the outside world, and of course, not just the Western Pacific, not just Asia, but, but, but globally, and that Chinese activism in, in, in its many manifestations is, a, uh, is, is an area of concern, whether it's military activism, whether it's Chinese attempts at political influence, economic statecraft. Um, so that's 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 clearly one one thing that concerns us. The second uh, the second rheostat the second dial is geopolitical. And so let's imagine the, the one there is labeled continental, and the 10 is uh, labeled maritime. So it's not just the fact that, that China's more engaged with the outside world, but it's that it's China's maritime focus. It's in particular China's focus in maritime Asia, the Asian maritime littoral, which contains US allies, US territory, vital trade routes, right? So at a period where China has been more active in maritime Asia and beyond, that's, that's been one of the things that's really gotten our attention. Uh, even before the island building campaign, but pressure on our allies, pressure on our territory, now, of course, that 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 dial may be resetting itself a little bit um, with with the Belt and Road Initiative, and and uh, in some ways, China's rediscovery of the Asian continent. We'll we'll get to that, but but clearly, it's been particularly that 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 activity in maritime Asia that's that's been of concern. The third the third dial political scientists will, will, would love, because that, that's, that's, uh, that one would be labeled attitude towards the status quo. And the one is status quo, and the ten is non-status quo. And to be clear, it's, it's our perceptions of Chinese behavior. Because, again, I think, I think Phil did a, did a good job of laying out what is status quo or non-status quo from China's perspective. But the truth is China's engaged in a, in a whole a set of behaviors that are increasingly at variance with our view of the status quo. The Chinese Communist Party, Chinese leadership, appears less and less satisfied with the status quo. A status quo that has benefited us, I would say also has benefited China quite a lot over, over the decades. But that non-status quo behavior, or that dissatisfaction with the status quo, is, is, is a third cause of concern. And then the fourth dial, the fourth RIA stat, that sometimes we, we like to talk about, sometimes we don't like to talk about, but matters a lot, I think, to, to the American people, to our allies, and, and matters a lot actually to, uh, to China's perceptions of the US, has to do with China's political system. So that rheostat, the one would be labeled authoritarian, and the ten would be labeled pluralistic, liberal, whatever. And so it's the it's it's China's increasing authoritarian tendencies or or, or visible visi, visible authoritarian tendencies uh, tends to tends to concern us a lot, and I think you know one one can make the argument and I have made the argument that all other things being equal, if 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 uh, we had a China where the the settings were different on those dials but everything else everything else was the same economic growth what have you we would be much less concerned about about China. So if you you had a China that was more internally focused, if we had a China that was more continentally focused, if we had a China that was bought into elements of the the international status quo, maybe not even the whole thing, but much more bought into the the international status quo, and a, a China that was more pluralistic, all other things being equal, we'd be much less concerned. And I say that because we have another rising Great power that fits that description, and it's called India. And we're much less concerned about Indian behavior, right? India is much more internally focused, continentally focused, bought into many of the elements of the international status quo, although not all, and deliciously pluralistic, <laughs> right? So I, I advance that as a, as, a, as a topic for discussion and debate, because I think it's, it's, if, if we are going to formulate a, a strategy, we need to really start with a diagnosis. And that diagnosis should be based around what is it about China that dissatisfies us? What is it about Chinese behavior that causes us concern? So I think, you know, uh, as, as we think about what our goal should be in an era of great power competition, there I said it, we, we should, uh, that strategy should address or should at least ask the question, what can we do to address those, those elements of, of Chinese strategy that, uh, that, we, that we find uh, of concern? The answer might be nothing. Maybe there's nothing we could do. I tend not to believe that that's the case, but we should at least start with that. And then um, second, again, if, if we're, and I've, I've spent a lot of time recently talking to folks uh, on Wall Street who want to know when the Trump-Xi deal is going to be coming, and how long it's going to last. And I think my, 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 one of my side jobs has been to pour cold water on, 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 on all that, which is an interesting question, but maybe the wrong question. <laughs> Whatever deal we get, if we get one in the short term, is going to be short term and tactical. Because again, if you follow my logic, if these are the things that, that, uh, that concern us, tell me how a, some trade deal between Trump and G is going to deal with these things. I uh, don't think so. And then even more expansively, if you're looking for some sort of a modus vivendi between china and the united states show me how that modus vivendi would deal with the these elements that uh, that i've that i've laid out so hopefully uh with that i mean i know we're, we're supposed to inform but also provoke hopefully sure. that is sufficiently uh informative and provocative to uh, to fuel some good discussion for the rest of our time
0: great thank you very much tom uh, both I thought, very uh, rich and important uh, discussions. Um, well, we have about half an hour left in our session. So while you're thinking about what questions you want to ask, I wanted to ask a question for both of them. That Both Phil and Tom, you've uh, put out a, a, a lot of different issues onto the table. And both of you um, talked about great power competition. Now, a few weeks ago, I was talking to some, some officials from the Pentagon and they started asking me about GPC. And I, a person who's worked twice at the Pentagon, I I got a good acronym game, but I didn't (laughs) get what GPC was until eventually they explained it was great power competition, which to me was not a good sign that it had become an acronym. (laughs) So we've all talked about great power competition. We saw in the National Defense Strategy, the National Security Strategy, that this is sort of the, one of the guiding themes of politics and international relations for the Trump administration, but we haven't, gotten a lot of detail about what that competition actually mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if uh, both of you could sort of sort through the issues that you've both pulled out and give us your sense of what you believe the United States and China are competing over. Mm-hmm. What, is, what are the key aspects of that competition? And what does, from an American perspective, what does a successful competition in these areas look like?
2: OK. Well, let me do a couple things and then Tom will, Tom will fill it out. So there's the competition we're most familiar with from the Cold War, which is a military technical competition, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. So that's about power projection capability. That's about relative balance. That's about technolo- technological superiority in the military. And that's the most familiar to us from the Cold War. And from my perspective, what the Pentagon is most focused on and within its kind of core competency to think about that competition. Uh, So that's a piece of it. What I think is the harder to grasp is the competition for influence within the Indo-Pacific. That in a real sense, the battleground is all the countries in the Indo-Pacific and how they position themselves vis-a-vis the United States and China. Because if we don't have allies, if we don't have bases in the Asia-Pacific, if we're if we're rolled back to Guam and Hawaii, it's very hard for the U.S. to maintain a, a robust military presence uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So that battleground, and that's as much that, that involves diplomacy, that involves economics, it does involve military, but it's a much more ambiguous thing in terms of how do you measure influence, where are the critical thresholds, where it works against you, and that's a part that we're still trying to get our head around, I think, in the State Department and the Department of Defense, how to define that aspect of the competition, what do we care about. Uh, There's arguably an ideological competition. I don't think China has an ideology that it's trying to export in the way that the Soviets were, but they do want to make changes uh, in how global and regional institutions and norms function that better suit their interests. That's what rising powers do, it shouldn't be a surprise. And in many cases, since we built the status quo, we see that as negative for our interests. So I think there's an ideological competition there that manifests in specific institutions, rules, and norms. And that's that's part of it too. And then finally, that manifests, as Tom said, beyond the Indo-Pacific because we see a China that's increasingly active around the world, uh, including in places that the U.S. has traditionally regarded as our backyard. And that's a question I don't think we've really got our heads around. Do we have to be everywhere that China is, everywhere they are? We need to be responding to it. How do we set priorities? How do we define what China is doing that really threatens our interests and where we need to respond? And I think that's very much Mm -hmm. undefined at this point. So, so yeah, Abe, th- yeah, thanks, thanks for making my point about,
3: about jargon, and, and I think that's a real concern, right? Because for, for a couple of reasons. One is, I, I think you know, it's, it's very American, I think it's a very Western way of, uh, of, of thinking about the world. We tend to think about things dichotomously. We tend to think either you're at peace, or you're at war, or now, <laughs> using the new uh, the new lingo either you're in competition or you're in conflict right uh, and i think that's that's a very right. deeply held american cultural view It's not unique to the united states but we tend to view things dichotomously i think the i think the chinese i think others t- tend not to embrace that dichotomy they tend to see things as much more of a spectrum and so i think one of the concerns is that we've just sort of we've substituted competition for peacetime in, in at least some of, our, some of our thinking. And then we have this, you know, then we think about war. When, in fact, if you look at the interaction that's going on between China and the United States now, I mean, and certainly it's also the case uh, with, with Russia, it goes beyond what we would consider kind of peacetime competition. I think our, our notions of competition are also some, sometimes burdened by other notions of competition, right? So it's not—it's not like a sports game where you have a clearly defined field and rules and referees that throw, you know, throw uh, throw flags when you violated the rules. For me, when I think about competition, it's somewhere between cooperation and conflict, although it can have elements of both. And so. What are we competing over? I think, you know, for for China, the Chinese Communist Party leadership is ultimately competing over its existence and its continued rule. And so that involves not only internal security, but it also involves a regional environment and even, I think, increasingly a global environment that is conducive to the perpetuation of the CCP's authoritarian rule. And that's why I think we're, it's increasingly, you know, we're, we're not talking about something that is neatly defined uh, in a regional frame, let alone the area of responsibility of a global combatant command with a changing name, right? So, so in order to preserve its rule, the CCP feels that it needs to exert influence over Chinese students, Chinese citizens, all across the world and that includes political influence activities that includes intelligence activities that are that are worldwide in order to seek political influence China has engaged in all sorts of economic statecraft, including some pretty predatory and malicious practices that are global in their, in their nature. In furtherance of its technology development goals, its military goals, China has engaged in uh, economic espionage that is again global in its scope, not regional. So I think for us, that's, that poses a whole bunch of challenges, right? Because we're used to thinking about China as a, an Asia issue, we're, uh, and, and whether it's DOD or state, we're used to thinking about China fitting into a, a, a bin, an area of responsibility, a, a regional bureau. When in fact, the, the rise of China and China as a, as a global power really means that, that China really influences a whole bunch of issues. Fascinating piece of, of historical trivia. Throughout the Cold War, there was no office in the office of the Secretary <laughs> of Defense responsible for the Soviet Union. There was no Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. Um, the position of Ru- uh, the DASD for Russia and Eastern Europe was created at the end of the Cold War by the Bush 41 administration. Why? Because the reality of the Cold War was that Russia, you know, the Soviet uh, challenge, was pervasive. Why, why would you bin it in a, small, uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a single office? Not to say we're, uh, we're entering a new Cold War, But given the pervasiveness of of China's influence and the multidimensionality of it, I think we we need to get away from just thinking about it as as centered in a a particular organization, Pacific region or or domain.
0: Well, thanks to you both. Uh, Very good answers. Uh, We can take a few questions now.